You may be seated. As I was working on this sermon, I stumbled onto a self-help article in Forbes magazine on the 10 things to remember when going through tough times. Now, this is typical self-help stuff, um, so don't, don't take notes here. Don't write these down, uh, but I do want to point these out. Some of them are probably helpful, not necessarily these, but others, and this is what caught my attention, others run completely counter to what we've been learning in the book of Psalms this summer. So here are five of the ten things on the list. This author is considered a global authority on these things. Number two is, you've overcome tough times before, you will again. And that sounds very encouraging. The reality, though, is that there is no guarantee of that. It is just wishful thinking. And wishful thinking offers no real hope or comfort for souls that are in distress. Number three is, no matter how bad it feels now, it won't feel this way forever. And I, I feel like that one could be salvaged, except for the fact that it's severed from what happened at the cross. If I remain dead in my sins, no matter how bad my troubles feel today, I can be certain that my future will be far worse. So apart from Christ, this is just a cliche. It's wishful thinking again, no real hope, and no comfort for the distressed soul. You are bigger than your problems. You can hear in there Norman Vincent Peale's The Power of Positive Thinking. Believe in yourself, but it's not true. There are problems bigger than us. We all know that. So again, as reassuring as this might sound, it offers no hope and no comfort when your soul is distressed. Number seven is interesting because the author tries to get spiritual. Faith doesn't remove your problems, it transforms them. Now, she doesn't tell us exactly what they transform into, but they transform. And here's how she tried to explain it. We can't connect the dots moving forward. We can only connect them looking backwards. So keep faith that as messy as your situation might be right now, in the long arch of time, the dots will connect. I don't know what exactly she meant by all that, but I, for one, am not interested in a faith that merely wishes that someday, somehow, nebulous dots are going to connect for me. I want the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things that I cannot see. Don't tell me that everything is just going to work out someday. That gives me no hope on a Monday afternoon when the doctor tells me I have cancer. And number 10 says it all. Trust yourself. Whatever happens, you'll handle it. You've got this. You can rely on yourself. How many times have you heard that? Of course, it's a pipe dream, just like all the others. 
no hope, no comfort. And that's just a sampling of, the, of what the world has to offer your soul when it is in distress. Now, you could add to that whatever distractions or activities you want, diet, yoga, breathing exercises, vacation, me time, whatever. Short of medication, that's pretty much the extent of what the world has to offer troubled souls. Let's see if Psalm 11 shows us a better way. This is another Psalm of David, and I'm, for one, and glad that David is the one who wrote this Psalm, because I want to learn from a godly man like him. He knew what it meant to trust God when his world was falling apart, when scoffers were telling him to flee for his life. This man was hunted and attacked by enemies and armies of enemies. He was betrayed by his friends and family. Even his own king at one point tried to pin him to the wall with a spear. David knew what it felt like to be distressed to the very core of his being, and he knew where to find refuge. This song of his is only seven verses long. I felt bad that Josh preached almost 40 verses last week, and I'll barely be able to handle these seven. These seven verses can be broken into three parts. In the first half of verse 1, David makes his point. He takes refuge in the Lord. In the second half of verse 1 through the end of verse 3, he gives us a glimpse into the situation that forced him to take refuge. We don't know the specifics, but we get some insight. Then for the rest of the psalm, verses 4 through 7, David lays out five reasons why he takes refuge in the Lord instead of fleeing. Verse 1, in the Lord I take refuge. That's David's main point. Whatever was happening to him, he makes it clear from the start that his refuge, the fortress in which he hides from enemy assault, was the Lord. He puts himself entirely in the hands of his God. Then he turns to the scoffers and says, How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? David has one, more than one scoffer in his ear. We know that because the word you is plural. These scoffers are telling him, flee like a little birdie. Go hide in your mountain. But to David, that was unthinkable in this situation. If he doesn't flee, though, the scoffers tell him he's doomed because the wicked bend their bow. That literally means they step on their bow. And that makes sense to some of the archery hunters in the room. To string a bow, the hunter or the warrior would step on the middle of his bow and bend the ends together in order to put on the bowstring. So they were readying their weapon. But not only did they ready their weapon, they notched an arrow to the bowstring. And their aim was to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. They're going to fire their deadly arrows from the shadows in an ambush. And their target, the godly, won't even see it coming. Verse 3, the scoffers are still talking. 
If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? They're telling David that he's defeated. If the king and his entourage are killed, the very foundations of society will be destroyed. And if that happens, there's no hope. What can the righteous do? Nothing, the scoffers say. The bad guys win. The good guys are doomed. And that's all we know of the situation that David is in. But more importantly, we know David's response. He took refuge in the Lord. So in a sense, David did flee, but not to the mountains. He fled to the Lord. The beauty of this psalm is that it applies to so many situations in our life where we encounter trouble. None of us probably are in situations as dire or as deadly as David's. So we should be able to apply it to situations in our life that are less extreme. But let me add a couple of things to help us do that. First, the scoffers in your life might look very different than David's. They might be external, maybe a scoffing husband or a wife or a friend. But maybe your scoffer is internal. You telling yourself that your situation is hopeless and that you should flee to somewhere other than to the Lord. So the scoffers in your life might look very different than David's. Your fleeing might also look different. Fleeing isn't always physical. You can flee emotionally. You can flee mentally. Or you can flee to other gods in your life like money, power, or whiskey to save you. Your scoffers and your fleeing might look different. And that's important for us to recognize as we try to press this psalm into our lives. Your scoffers can be internal or external. And your temptations to flee might come in different flavors. But what these scoffers all have in common is this. They tell you that you're defeated, that your situation is hopeless, and that you should flee rather than take refuge in your God. Let me make one more thing clear before we move forward. Nothing in this psalm suggests that there's not a time to flee for your physical safety. David did that many times, and, there, and it wasn't wrong for him to do so in those circumstances. But that's not what this psalm is about. We don't have enough inform- information about David's specific situation to know why fleeing to the mountains was not an option. We could only guess, but what we do know is that taking refuge in the Lord, not in your safe location, is the point of the song. The aim of the scoffers is for you to give up your faith, not merely to change your location. So what are the scoffers in your life telling you? I don't know, but let me toss out a few ideas. Many today are saying that the very foundations of our country are being destroyed. A poll conducted earlier this year said that 64% of Americans believe that our democracy is in crisis and at risk of failing. We have less than 100 days until midterm elections, 
And you can be sure that gloom and doom will be coming at us from both sides. If we elect the Democrats, democracy is doomed. If we elect the Republicans, democracy is doomed. And the scoffers are telling some of you to flee. And I don't mean flee the state of Washington so much as I mean fleeing to the promises, the fleeting promises of politics and politicians to save you instead of taking refuge in your Lord. So will you flee to the mountain or to the Lord? What about your personal well-being, your job and your bank account? What if the foundations of your finances are crumbling and the scoffer within you is telling you to flee in whatever form that takes, drinking your financial distress away, forsaking other obligations, or making an idol out of money or a new job or promotion? Will you flee to the mountain or to the Lord? Or what if the foundation of your marriage is crumbling? Communication broke down years ago. You're always bickering. You no longer trust him. She says you no longer meet her needs. Your scoffer friends and your favorite podcasts tell you to flee. Will you flee to the mountain or to the Lord? And those are just examples. You can fill in the blank with whatever your situation is this morning. But David does us a great service here. He devotes the rest of this song, verses four through seven, to why we should flee to the Lord and not to the mountain for refuge. Reason one, take refuge in the Lord because he reigns supremely. That's another way of saying that he is sovereign This is the overarching reason. If you hear nothing else I say this morning, hear this. The sovereignty of the Lord, the fact that he reigns supreme over everything is the reason to take refuge in him and nowhere else. The other four reasons that follow simply explain and support this one primary truth. See it for yourself in verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The temple here, Calvin convinced me, is referring to heaven, not the tent that held the Ark of the Covenant. And that becomes clear as we read the next few phrases. Still in verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on, the Lord is in, his Lord's throne is in heaven. So the Lord is in heaven where he dwells high and exalted in unapproachable light. But that's not all. His throne is is there as well. Not only does he dwell in heaven, he reigns from heaven. And that's the key to understanding sovereignty. Don't lose sight of the forest. The reason we take refuge in the Lord is because he reigns supremely over everything. Because he is supreme. And since that's the main reason, let me give you the best definition I know for that word sovereignty. This is A.W. Pink, and it's a little bit lengthy, but it's worth it. The sovereignty of God, what do we mean by that expression? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign 
is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high, doing according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth so that none can stay his hand or say unto him, what have you done? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and on earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleases him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Such is the God of the Bible. So where are you going to flee when trouble strikes? Or when you can't get out of bed in the morning after another painful loss of a friendship or another argument with your husband? The self-help experts tell you to trust yourself. You're bigger than your problems. Psalm 11 says, take refuge in the God who reigns in heaven, who possesses all power both in heaven and on earth. How insane it is to trust myself or trust in a mountain hiding place instead of a sovereign God like him. And in the throes of my distress, what a comfort it is to know that all power and authority belong to him. He is a refuge. I can trust him. He is a bomb-proof bunker for the upright in heart. Hope and comfort abound for the godly, but not for everyone. Reason number two. Again, these next four reasons explain and support the main one. His eyes see. He reigns over everything, therefore he sees everything. He could not claim absolute sovereignty if there was anything of which he was unaware. Not our God. From his heavenly vantage, God sees. Nothing escapes his gaze. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. One of my favorite verses from last week's message, Josh, was Psalm 1014. David laid out his complaint that the wicked were crushing the helpless, and they were mocking God, saying, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He will never see it. Then David injects a massive dose of comfort and hope in verse 14. But you do see. I love those words. But you do see. 
For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. That's taking refuge in the Lord. That is being helpless and committing yourself into the hands of the Lord. For the upright in heart, what a comfort. But it is certainly not so for the wicked. The self-help gurus will tell you to have faith that somehow, sometime, in the future, all the dots will connect. Psalm 11 shows us a much better way, a rock-solid place to put our faith in the God who sees and knows all things, all dots, past, present, and future, all things that were, that are, that ever will be, and all things that ever could be. His eyes see. Reason number three, verses four and five. Not only do his eyes see, his eyelids, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. If he only saw my distress, but made no judgment or determination about what he saw, who was at fault? Who was wronged? Who committed this crime? It would be of little comfort to me, but because he is sovereign, he not only sees, but he tests. That word test means to examine and to prove, like testing precious metals by melting them with intense heat. The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. It's fascinating that the same word is used for the righteous and for the wicked. From other passages, we know that the Lord has very different motives for each. He puts the righteous through flames to purify them. He disciplines them like a loving father for their good. But the testing of the wicked is something quite different. So let's allow this truth to be a great comfort to us in our distress Take refuge in the Lord. He is sovereign. He sees. He tests. And he will never allow an injustice to go unpunished. And that's our fourth reason. The Lord punishes the wicked. The Lord tests everyone. Then what? He does what is right, as he always does, because he is righteous. God's righteous by one definition means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. So the Lord not only sees and tests, but he executes justice. David uses strong language here. Verse 5, the Lord's soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Can see the play on words there. The Lord hates the one who loves violence. He hates the wicked. Then with no apology, David prays that God would rain coals on the wicked because that's what justice demands. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. You know, at some point as we continue studying the Psalms, we're going to have to take a look at prayers like that. We saw one last week as well. 
when David prayed that the Lord would break the arm of the wicked. There is a time, I think, when that kind of prayer is necessary, but we'll save that for a future sermon. Here, David takes language from Genesis 19, which describes God's fiery destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he uses it to call for the destruction of the wicked. That might seem extreme to some, but the holy justice of our God demands it. He is of purer eyes than to see evil, and he cannot look at wrong. That is, he cannot let wrongs go unpunished. That would be unjust. But because he is just, every punishment he pronounces will perfectly fit the crime. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. He is a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. There is a great comfort here for the godly in knowing that God is just. In times of distress, they can rest assured that the wicked shooting arrows at them from the shadows will one day get the punishment they deserve. Again, this is hope and comfort for the upright. Reason five, as the sovereign Lord, he sees, he tests, he punishes the wicked, and he blesses the upright. It's interesting, though, how David says that. Verse seven, for the Lord is righteous. He doesn't just say the Lord punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous. No, he proclaims that the Lord is righteous, that he always acts in accordance with what is right. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds. Because God is absolutely and perfectly righteous, it follows that he loves everything that is right. He loves righteous deeds. So because of what God is by nature, namely righteous, he loves everything that is right. Therefore, here's the conclusion, the upright shall behold his face. That conclusion may have surprised you. The opposite of hellfire and brimstone for the wicked seems to be a sight of the face of God. Jesus told us who would see God's face. In his Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's the same message here. The upright in heart shall see God. To see God's face is what theologians call the beatific vision. The experience of beholding the glory of God that believers will bask in forever. Listen to Jonathan Edwards try to describe the beatific vision. The pleasure of seeing God is so great and strong that it takes the full possession of the heart. It fills it brimful so that there shall be no room for any sorrow, no room in any corner for anything of an adverse nature from joy. No darkness can bear such powerful light. It is impossible that they that see the face of God, that behold his glory and love so immediately as they do in heaven, should have any such thing as grief or pain in their hearts. 
When once the saints are thus come into God's presence, tears shall be wiped from the eyes and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The pleasure will be so great as fully and perfectly to employ every faculty, that is every ounce of our glorified being, will find pleasure in the sight of our God's face. The sight of God's glory and love will be so wonderful, so engaging to the mind, and shall keep all the powers of it in such strong attention that the soul will be wholly possessed and taken up. Seeing God's face will be something like that. And yes, it is precisely the opposite of hell, fire, and brimstone. It is the greatest blessing of grace that God could bestow upon a creature. Now, let's back up from the trees and take a look at the forest again. We take refuge in the Lord because, one, he reigns supreme over everything. And because he reigns as supreme over everything, two, he necessarily sees everything, even what happens in my heart. He not only sees everything, but three, he tests everyone. And his testing is not without effect. Four, he punishes the wicked. And five, he will show himself to the upright. Those are but five hope-inspiring, comfort-giving reasons for us to take refuge in the Lord. And as we close, let me say a word about what it means to take refuge. If it's that glorious and, that's good, and that good, and if there's so much hope and so much comfort, and what does it mean to take refuge? I've touched on it several times, but let me make it explicit. To take refuge in the Lord is to believe, it's to trust or to put your faith in him. It is to embrace him. It is to find in him your only hope. And to borrow from John Piper, it is the heartfelt conviction that only he is reliable. Not only reliable, but that he is desirable. It is the confidence that he will come through with the promises and that, he will, and that what he promised is more desirable than all the world. It is a fleeing to him rather than fleeing to a mountain. That's what it means to take refuge in the Lord. It's not something you can conjure up or make happen by the effort of your sheer willpower, nor can you do it by your good performance. It is grace. It is a gift from God that was purchased for us at the cross. And there is nowhere that this gracious God of refuge can be seen more fully and more clearly than in the person and work of Jesus. This entire psalm, when seen through the lens of the New Testament, is about him. It points to him as our only refuge. Let me show you you'll recognize each of these points. One, Jesus reigns. He is sovereign over everything. God raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet. 
That is the absolute sovereignty of Jesus. Take refuge in him because he reigns supremely. And because Jesus is sovereign, two, he sees everything. And three, he will test everyone. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, Jesus said this, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus is sovereign. He sees everything, and he will test everyone. Therefore, number four, Jesus will punish the wicked. In one of his sermons, the apostle Peter said, Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the, to be judge of the living and the dead. You should recognize that language from the Apostles' Creed. Paul uses it and Peter uses it. He is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. And the book of Revelation gives us the most vivid image of Jesus punishing the wicked. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule over them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus will punish the wicked. And five, he will allow himself, and this is glorious, he will allow himself to be seen by the upright in heart. Before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given to me, may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory. That's the beatific vision to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The apostle John said, Beloved, we are, God's, uh, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, that's Jesus, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What a comforting thought. For your distressed soul this morning. No matter what happens here, you're going to see the face of Jesus, and there is no pleasure on earth that compares with seeing the face of our Lord. So to the believers this morning, I say, in your times of distress, no matter what the scoffers whisper in your ear, Flee to Christ. He is your only refuge. And to the unbelievers, I urge you to flee to Christ as well. Your situation this morning is more dire and more deadly than David's. 
You are counted among the wicked this morning. And the all-sovereign, all-seeing, just punisher of the wicked King Jesus will hold you to account one day. And the only way to escape the wrath of the Lamb is to take refuge in Him. The Lord's soul hates the wicked. Those are not empty words. You will not let wrongs go unpunished. Your sins require that justice be served. The very thing about God that gives believers such hope and comfort is the very thing that should unsettle every believer here this morning. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said it like this at the end of a sermon that he preached in 1856. I have but a few words to say to some who I grieve to think have no comfort. They lack something else before they can be comforted. Some of my hearers are not God's people. They've never believed in Christ nor fled to him for refuge. Now, I will tell you briefly and plainly the way of salvation. Sinner, know that you are in God's sight guilty, that God is just and that he will punish you for your sins. Listen then, there is only one way by which you can escape, and it is this, Christ must be your substitute. Either you must die or Christ must die for you. Your only refuge is faith in Jesus Christ. Apart from him, there is no refuge. Flee to him. Let me pray for us. Father, this psalm has been such a delight to my soul. I am, I am thankful for the hope and the comfort that you have given me this past week in meditating upon it. Father, I pray that in the coming days, your people here who are struggling and suffering, who, have, who are living troubled lives, Father, that you would use these words to bring great hope and much comfort to them. And Father, I pray that you would also do a work in those here who do not know you, who have never fled to your son for refuge. Father, I pray that you would awaken their heart to the reality of their sin, your justice. And Father, I pray that they would embrace you, that they would flee to your son for refuge this morning. Father, I pray that they would not wait another day. Father, do that miracle in their heart.